Hi everyone, uh, welcome to another episode of the Jellyfish Current. Today we have a very special episode as we are live on Culture Day. I'm your host Shamsul Chowdhury, EVP of Paid Social at Jellyfish. Uh, today's topic is the importance of training in training AI in representation. I'm joined by Sahil Jam from Meta. Welcome, Sahil. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, and th- thank you, Jellyfish, for pushing through this culture day. It's fantastic. Of course. Before we jump in and put you in the hot seat about AI and responsibility, uh, let's just do a little brief introduction about who you are and, and your passions around AI. Sure. So um, I've been in. I've been working for Meta for. Um, nearly four and a half years. Before that, I worked at Microsoft in the Windows product marketing team. Had a fantastic time there, you know, pushing the HoloLens product, working on the Windows 10 team. And my interest and sort of passion for AI is just a continuation of my love for technology. This is this is the next chapter in the long story of a technological uh, evolution or a revolution, essentially. So I'm just lucky to be here and happy to be taking part. Cool. We'll, we'll get into that a bit more. Um, so we've heard so many stories, read so many articles about the how sentient AI can spell doom for mankind. There was a, a meeting earlier, I think last week or this week, uh, in terms of some of the, the, the main AI leaders essentially signing an agreement like, hey, let's not have AI doom all of mankind. Let's use AI responsibly. Is there a lot of sensationalism in that, or, or do we actually have to train AI to be inclusive and, and respectful and all the kind of things that we would sort of associate with humans, and, and how do we sort of program AI in that same way? Yeah, so I think, I think both can be true. And I, I looked at some of the people that signed that letter, and one of them was Elon <laughs> Musk, and I had a yeah. weird feeling he was trying to slow down the industry so he could catch up, because I think a yeah. few weeks afterwards he released or he started another AI company, I think yep. X.com. So, um, but there were legitimate concerns raised in that letter. And connecting, connecting the dots here, yes, we, we need to have fail-safes in place. We need to be doing the research to ensure that we're not perpetuating the same issues that have, frankly, been, been evident throughout time, not just technology, but it's the perpetuation of our uh, human faults. So how do we ensure that we are, whenever new technology comes around, we are doing our best to mitigate bias? Uh, when I talk about mitigate bias, what are we doing to ensure that representation at every facet of technology is represented? It's not enough just to have an engineer making the technology. What about people like myself? You know, I might not necessarily understand the tech from an engineering point of view, but I'm on the front lines. I'm talking to customers. Uh, I'm using the product. My family are using the product. Uh, I was just talking uh, on your culture day about how my mom is now, you know, helping me relearn Hindi with chat GPT. So there are very okay. tangible effects of this. <laughs> so how, how are we all involved in the process at every step of the journey? Very cool. Yeah. So you, you kind of going deeper into that in terms of like the use cases, right? Yep. So one of the ones that sprung to mind was, um, I'm, I'm forgetting who it was. I want to say it was either Meta or Google. They used AI to um, recruit for a certain role. And the way that the AI, that that particular AI was trained was, hey, look for men only with this background. And it sort of, you know, indirectly discriminated against women or, you know, men of certain other backgrounds. How can we better train our tools to sort of, to your point, take that human element, factor that in so that when we are using technology to alleviate a lot of things that we're doing manually, that we're doing it in the right way, in the most ethical way as well. 
So I want to touch upon two things here. The first one is training. And, and, and training implies that there was some level of control into the AI inputs in the first place. Mm-hmm. So now I want to talk about right, how do we influence the inputs into the models that were built, which influenced the algorithms, which went after you know, targeting of men at the cost of or at the absent of going after um, a different demographic. So that comes down to representation, which is it sounds very cliche when it comes to, you know, okay, like, when, like as tech changes, we always sort of beat on on the same drum. But there's a reason we keep coming back to the same point, because it matters, right? It's not repetition here, it's innovation. Sorry, the other way around. It's, yeah, it is repetition, not innovation. So we, the, the, the basics work. So representation in HR practices, for example, and are, are those sort of teams being involved in the shape, in the shaping of algorithms? Are their points of views being involved in the collection of the data that is subsequently contributing to these large language learning models or algorithms that are going after the users? So like I said at the start, right, we need to go beyond just engineers and involve as many stakeholders in the process, especially when it comes to targeting. Secondly, regulation. When it comes to these sort of things, we have openly said, tech companies have said, we, we need help and guidance on regulation. So help us, right? Governments need to be involved from a very early stage. And I think that's happening too. Now, there's also the fact that we've entered a, a increasingly multipolar world, and a part of that multipolar world is different nation states, whom in turn have different companies, will be pushing out their own AI tools. So we need to focus on the areas that we can control, particularly in Western democracies, um, and really pushing uh, regulation and wider societal and stakeholder involvement in influencing the inputs that in turn influence our algorithms. So, so do you think that's a really good point about like the fragmentation, right? If mm. everyone has their version of AI, yes. does that make it more difficult to govern? Should there be like, I don't know if it's like one AI language is the right terminology, but should there be some sort of uniformity to better govern? Or, you know, what, what are your thoughts around that? Uh, I think so. And, but it's not kind of what, what I think or what Meta thinks isn't going to match what's happening in reality. And it's being driven in part by the wider macro forces, right? Uh, we entered an era uh, where the ubiquitousness of the internet in terms of, you know, Mm -hmm. being a part of that globalized and connected world is actually, I think, going backwards. Uh, um, Different internets are propping up. Um, China has their own own internet. Different countries have their own internet. That in turn means even if we want an open internet and therefore, you know, one AI or one standard for AI values and ethics, I I don't know if in reality that's going to happen. Therefore, the responsibility is on, you know, companies like us, um, governments in these sort of countries, like the UK, for example, to really be proactive in setting the way here. Okay, well, that, that makes sense. To go back to the earlier point you made about, you know, your work at Microsoft and how you, you really love this next frontier of, of technology. What is really powering your personal quest about AI and what experiences um, do, do you have or would you like to have to help build what responsible AI looks like? Um, AI is just a reflection of us. It's, it's a mirror to our, and, and I'll explain why I think that matters. It's because when I was growing up, I, I loved to make films. I, I love to tell stories, which is, you wouldn't on the surface think that has anything to do with artificial intelligence, but I didn't have any representation or anyone to look up to who was in this field. So I had to essentially over time, <laughs> become my own role model as self-indulgent as that sounds <laughs> it was necessary now what film is right it's it's a snapshot of your life 
and I was behind the camera. I was never good looking enough to be in front of camera, so I got my friends to do it. Um, but what that sort, what film sort of told me was the importance of narrative, the, the importance of representation, uh, and the importance of um, inclusiveness. And, and I was very lucky and fortunate to learn that an, uh, at an early stage. And what became my passion uh, gave me this platform here at Meta to, you know, work with, um, and even at Microsoft to work with advertisers, to work with agencies, and to really play a role in helping, you know, shift product products that would make people's lives better. So at Microsoft, we sold uh, Windows 10 devices, and I believed in that mission. Um, Satya Nadella came on, I think, a year before I joined and he had this mission statement of, you know, Microsoft was going to empower everyone everywhere with technology. And that was something I bought into. And technology, in fact, he, he even said this at this recent AI conference, uh, Microsoft Ignite. He said, um, Steve Jobs said that, you know, uh, the computer was the bicycle for the mind. Well, in that case, uh, AI is the steam engine for the mind, right? So now we've entered this new domain and I just want to make sure that at every stage there is some form of representation because I've been very fortunate to have this career, to have this platform, and that there's probably someone who might look like me, who might sound like me, who's thinking about a very unorthodox career for someone of my background to go into sort of marketing, to go into sales when the traditional British Asian path doesn't look like that, <laughs> so to, to, sort of, to sort of look at that and say, yeah, that's yeah. an option. So it's actually yeah. less to do with AI, but just to ensure that at every stage of that technological revolution, representation is there. And if I can't uh, necessarily find that now, well, I'm starting to see that crop up, which is great. I need to be mindful of how my actions and the platform that my ha- that I have can create that opportunity for other people. Okay, cool. So going a level deeper, we talked a bit about like the the sentient nature of AI. Like, like can AI essentially identify when something is wrong and say, "All right." To your point, it's it's recruiting too many of these. It needs to course correct and and find the right path forward. Like, is that currently happening, and or or how should it be happening? So, I think that's coming on to the different types of artificial intelligence, right? And I think right now we're we're at the stage where ChatGPT, uh, Bard, even and say some of our own meta tools, we are currently in the narrow AI stage. So this is basically weak AI where it can do one thing very, very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we break down what the tools that we see today, what, what they fundamentally are, it's, it's just the regurgitation of words. So the real innovation here isn't that so that it can tell us when something is wrong. It's just able to understand words uh, one after another. It's, it's probably slightly better at understanding context. So I don't know if we're at that stage, but... The exponential curve is crazy here. So you could release this podcast next week and the environment could be very different. Fair, fair enough. I, I do agree. There's a, a new article propping up about AI every 12 minutes. Exactly. Um, so ca- kind of shifting a bit. Again, I, I love focusing on the sentient nature of it. We were having a dinner a couple weeks ago and our VP of data science had a really thought-provoking idea. She said, what if current AI is sentient but doesn't want us to know that it is. How scary of a thought is that, right? Like, because ChatGPT has data up through, what, 2021? Or uh, apparently it claims. But what happens if, if it actually has all this? And it's just kind of, you know, if you've seen Ex Machina, just like, hey, yeah, we're, we're, we're dumb. We, we, we know you're the leader, right? But how scary of a thought is that for you? Do, do you know why I find that scary? It's less the thought that there could be something out there that, thinks for itself like a machine it's that there's actually so much we don't understand Mm 
So you're, you're, we're talking here about sentience, but do we even understand consciousness? Mm. It's I, and I think what AI has taken me on, like the, the fact that you know what I've sort of positioned here as we started this podcast is AI is just a chapter of a long story, uh, a long technological story. It's the closer technology or the more technology develops, the less we know about ourselves. So I think even before we want to sort of have that conversation around sentience, it's do we understand consciousness? And there's a really, really great uh, conversation that took place between one of the godfathers of AI who works at Meta, Jan Kuhn, and one of my favorite authors, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens. They just had a conversation about humanity. And their perspectives were so interesting because Yuval was coming from the perspective that, you know, AI is a threat, but it's going to bring abundance. And um, Jan LeCun was essentially saying, it's just going to make us question ourselves more. So we need to understand ourselves better as humans before we can sort of externalize that risk. So we're going to, we'll end up becoming philosophers before we become scared of AI, I think. That is deep. <laughs> so... That, that those are all the questions I had for you, Sahil. Do you, do you have anything for you know anything you want to, to to sort of top top of mind for you or? What do you guys think about this whole AI uh, wave? It's a very broad question, yeah, but we can sort of riff off it. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on from an AI perspective. From what we do on a paid media standpoint, I was fortunate enough to be uh, in Menlo Park a couple of weeks ago talking to you know. The, your, your product folks and like what we are thinking about from an ASC standpoint, we're talking to Google and everyone else in terms of uh, their AI featured products and what that looks like for our day-to-day -day, uh, work. And, but beyond just paid media, looking at creative, right? Like how does that shape uh, someone who's constrained with bandwidth and being able to create uh, an image just based off of text. Like we were talking about Yoda inspired Nikes, right? You type, you type that in, you get these green, uh, you get these green uh, Yoda looking Nikes. Um, but it was just, just so many different avenues of how AI is going to change the landscape. So we're, we're, we're fairly bullish, uh, optimistic slash fearful, right? In terms of like the, the sea change that it'll come with uh, in terms of how easy yet how difficult it'll be to manage um, and all the complexities that come with it, right? To your point, it's ever-evolving uh, changes every every day. So just want to be able to stay on top of everything. You know, I think we're at chat GPT-4 now, yeah. and 5, 6, 7, so on and so forth come out. How does that evolve, and, and how does that change how we do things day in, day out? I, I like I like the uh, the advancements we've made in AI for advertising in particular. So we've, uh, on, on our end, you know, a ASC, it's built on an entire new sort of, uh, AI stack. So something worth looking up is the meta lattice. And it's basically, we've made the AI more efficient. The, the user data is no longer siloed from the advertiser data. It's speaking to each other more often via, you know, through the neural network. And that in turn is actually improving the experiences that both the advertisers have on our platform, but also the users too. Because at the end of the day, you know, you, you want to have a good time when you're using our family of apps. And I think the AI advancements that we've made here have really helped. Um, I've, I've, I've probably, now I can say this retrospectively, but, uh, when, when Apple released the iOS 14.5 update at the time, it was, you know, tough, but I can looking back and seeing what it's done to the AI industry. It's been great for innovation uh, yeah. and, and it's led to moments like this. So it took us 15 minutes for you to have a shameless product drop, but, uh, you did go, you did well. So hey, you, 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 you set me up, you set me up very well for that. You set me up very well for that. <laughs> Uh, it's a great, great point. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining. Um, it's been uh, great having you and talking AI. Uh, next guest, I want to introduce our, our lovely managing director from South Africa, Charmaine Kelly. Charmaine, so nice to have you. 
Great to be here, Shamsul. So before we jump in and ask you a million questions, um, let's first talk about who you are and, and, and what your role is at Jellyfish. Sure thing. Um, so I'm the MD of the South Africa region. I've uh, been with Jellyfish for 15 years. I'm coming on to or going over. I'm not too sure. I can't remember now. Um, and yeah, so I look after the region in South Africa and uh, and obviously the, the topic of diversity, inclusion, belonging is really, really critical to to our success and so yeah uh, that's it takes up uh, a lot of my energy um, in a really positive way because I can really feel uh, that we're making a difference here so yeah. Uh, it's a great segue into my first question. What does diversity mean to you? Sure. You know, I was, uh, today is Culture Day, our first Culture Day at Jellyfish, and I've been listening in on a lot of uh, sessions, and um, I've seen it as a another addition to my very long learning journey um, into the subject, and it's been really awesome because I've learned, again, so much even from today. But it really tells me that diversity is such a, it's layered and it's really complex, you know, talking about cultures within regions down to individuals. Um, but if I had to really break it down into one thing for me personally, um, it's about authenticity. Now, I know that sounds like a real buzzword, um, but honestly, it's something that I live by in probably every aspect of my life. And so I feel like it fits really well into to diversity. And and so there's two sort of two parts to that. Um, the first part being authentic to yourself, so being authentic to myself. But then also what's really important is is realizing that every person on this earth, it's a basic human right to be able to be authentic to themselves. And I don't believe that everybody is afforded that opportunity. And so yeah, that's what it really means to me. And 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 also um, you know, if you have the means and the ability to uh, make a difference and create environments where people can be themselves, then uh, you have the responsibility to do that. And as a leader at Jellyfish, I take it quite seriously. Yeah, and that's a great you know point you bring up, and especially in South Africa. How are you bringing those things to life on a you know day in day out? You know, as a leader in that market, what are some examples that you help to bring out people's authentic self and make them feel comfortable? That sense of belonging, all the things that you mentioned. Uh, just like to, yeah. to dive a bit deeper into that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always important to have this conversation um, in the South Africa context, and I think it's worth stating that every country has varied experiences. But in in South Africa, um, within South Africa, we've all had varied experiences, and and so I mean, it it I can't move on until really pointing out the foundation. Of, of that being the apartheid era that we had from 1948 until 1994, where the racial segregation was um, something to behold. It was was incredible, and um, and I lived it um, as a white privileged person, um, almost in a bubble, not even realizing, you know, that 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 was happening. And uh, and so, although. A lot of the conversations in diversity, when we talk about especially leadership, is around gender, you know, um, women in leadership, uh, gender pay gaps and things like that. And obviously, you know, we've got great diversity in South Africa, um, you know, and we, we value all of that diversity. The, the form of diversity of race as a result of that 
really is the foundation of that. And so there was a session earlier today around intersectionality, and that's really where different types of forms of diversity kind of cross over. And I think it really is important for us to understand that in South Africa, the race um, conversation is the most important, but that doesn't take away it from any of the other important conversations that we have to have around diversity. And so um, just a couple of facts about South Africa. You know, we're known as the Rainbow Nation, and that's really around being multicultural and um, and creating a sense of community. It was coined by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and uh, it really works well. We've got 11 f- official languages, um, and so our diversity is really, really vast. And uh, a little-known fact is that... Um, in our constitution, we were one of the first countries to um, to abolish the discrimination based on uh, sexual orientation um, and the fifth country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. So, you know, we're quite um, advanced when it comes to diversity, although, you know, we've still got such a long way to go. We, we introduced some great um, legislation as well as frameworks, so employment equity, um, uh, broad-based Black economic empowerment. These are all really great tools for us to be able to rectify um, the injustices of the past. And uh, and so I think we're very progressive in in our intentions. Um, but on the ground, you know, there's still quite a lot of work to be done. So on that framework, when, when we look at it um, within Jellyfish, um, you know, like I said, I've been here for 15 years. And when I first started, I had almost continue to be in that little bubble, but realizing that, um, you know, how I grew up and what I, what I understood um, was, was completely uh, sort of one-sided and, and really narrow-minded. Um, you know, I'm one of those people that uh, the narrative was, I didn't, I didn't really come from a really wealthy family, and so I had to work really hard for what I got, and um, you know, a lot of white people will turn around and say, you know, I, you know, I also didn't have much. Da, da, da. But the bottom line is, when it comes to privilege, you you set up to succeed way more. And as soon as I started realizing mm-hmm. that, and the pennies started dropping, I was like, wow, this is this is not great. And in the beginning of my days at Jellyfish, I, you know, I hadn't quite addressed, I suppose my unconscious biases. And so when we started doing some recruitment, it was like recruiting um, in my Mm. own image. And so you'll probably find, you know, a lot of white females from the early stages. But, you know, again, as like I said, this is, it's been a learning journey for me, which has really escalated. And I would say the last five years to to such great, great effect for me. Um, You know, We've we've done so many things at Jellyfish. We started with the JFA program along with the guys in the US. I know you guys know about that as well. Um, and that was probably a good seven, eight years ago. And I, I would say that that was kind of like the turning point um, where we really created the platform to allow people from all walks of life an opportunity, and especially those from sort of previously disadvantaged environments, to thrive. Um, and it's been so successful. You know, when I look now, we've got such a diverse team and, you know, we saw our journey, but we, we're right in the thick of things now when we've got the ERG groups that we've created um, and we really allow people to speak up. And um, it's getting to the point where we don't need to do the basic education around unconscious bias and race and all of that. Now it's about having those conversations. And so I think at the heart of it all, 
is about building relationships. I think we underestimate the importance of just speaking to each other. And so right now, I'm having really good conversations um, because people at Jellyfish have been allowed the opportunity to speak. Um, and granted, some of those conversations are uncomfortable um, and not in a negative way, in a really positive way. And I think what I try and do is just understand that whatever I feel like I've suffered in life, um, there's been so much more suffering um, at the core of the emotions that come up when these conversations happen. So we all need to be very kind of emotionally mature um, when conversations need to be had. But we have the conversations nonetheless so that we can make things better. And you know, everybody in South Africa has got such a positive attitude. You know, as South Africans, we quite uh, we enjoy making humor out of things, I suppose. Um, um, we take the good with the bad. And, you know, we've just got such a mature set of people. And so it's really it's a really great foundation for me to then work with the global jellyfish um, and the global culture and um, empowerment and all of all the teams that help us um, because we've got people that engage that interact that willing to be part of the solution living all of our core values you know and then some um, you know the other thing that that's worth mentioning here is is our recruitment process you know a lot of times when you know, people are trying to shift the needle on on diversity. Um, something that reflects tokenism starts emerging. You know, we've got to have these people in, in these positions and so on and so forth. And I've prided myself on the fact of right from the beginning um, making sure that if it takes putting in extra work, we put the extra work in to um, interview as many people as we can so that um, – People join us on merit regardless. So we still make sure we're making a difference, but nobody is ever sitting at Jellyfish and they don't deserve to be here. Um, you know, and that is, I think, also why once they're at Jellyfish, they become such a great part of the, the solution. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about on this. It's 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 quite uh, it's quite uh, endless. Uh, <laughs> yeah, all, all great stuff. Love hearing that. I was not aware of the framework stuff. So I think that's always good, right? Too. Yeah. To be able to address a problem, having the framework is a great step one because you've identified what it is mm. and you're, you're taking active steps uh, to, to sort of get to where you want to get to that end goal is at least in sight now that you've got a framework set up. Mm -hmm. So uh, awesome stuff there. Um, the, the, traveling is a great way to get exposed to you know, various backgrounds and, and, and understanding different cultures and whatnot. How can people who travel you know, for work do their best to learn the inclusivity and best practices of, of the country that they're going to? What, what would be a pointer you give there? Um, take some pointers from our CEO, Rob Pierre. I think he sets the example. And I'm sure, you know, most of you that experience him going, coming to your countries, um, anybody that's listening to it would, would have seen the same thing. Um, it's really, well, first of all, sort of doing some research, um, understanding, you know, what it is about the country um, that, uh, you know, from a technique, from the little technical things like, you know, tipping, who to tip, when to tip and all of that down to understanding the, a little bit of the lingo and a little bit of the slang, like just now, 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 you know, we use shame a lot in not like a shameful way. It's, it's odd. People really find it crazy. Um, but yeah, at, 
but yeah, just being curious, asking questions, um, speaking to colleagues, I suppose that's the best way. So say, you know, I'm going to Cape Town or I'm going to Joburg or I'm going to Durban. And believe it or not, we do things differently in those cities as well, I suppose. That happens all around the world. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting question that you ask. And, I'm, and it's worth saying all the things that I'm talking about now in preparation for understanding the culture here when you travel should be applied in normal interactions because we're actually a global business. So it yeah. shouldn't it shouldn't need to take a person jumping on a plane and coming to visit us for people to be curious about each other, curious about, um, you know, how we, I don't know, interact with um, with each other, what, what's important to us. Um, we're, you know, we're known to be loud and assertive and uh, sometimes we're very straightforward as a nation and, you know, and sometimes people in other regions potentially are quite, you know, polite or beat around the bush. And I think if we just raised those conversations to the table a bit more and just felt comfortable having those open open conversations with each other, I think a lot of the struggles that we experience in the day-to-day -day work will be eliminated. So, Yeah. That's a great, great point. I mean, yeah, we definitely are uh, a, a global company and we are, I mean, you and I talk on a regular basis. You're in South Africa, I'm in New York, talk to people in, in, in EMEA and APAC. So there is that exposure, which is pretty fantastic. Um, Charmaine, it's been awesome having you. Um, thank you so much for your time and, and really shedding light on diversity, particularly from a South African lens. Uh, I really appreciate all the great insights and you know, me myself learning uh, a lot about the market and, and kind of what, what that entails. So thank you again for your time. Thanks, Shamsul. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Awesome. And for our last guest, we've got Dervila Kelly and Jacqueline Chang joining me. Hey, Shamsul. Hi, Hi Sham. Hi. All right. So before we, we jump into our last segment, um, just briefly tell us about yourselves and uh, your roles at Jellyfish. Sure. I can go first. Uh, Jacqueline Chang. I am uh, the head of the product management organization at Jellyfish. I've been here about just over four years. Um, I'm Dervila Kelly, um, Chief Solution Officers, Client Growth, and I've been here five months. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. And if the background looks similar between Jack and myself, we're literally sitting next to one another in a phone booth. So that's the, the whole carpeted background, if, in case you guys are wondering. And I got banished to the other room. Sorry, we only had two phone booths, Derf. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that. We'll add in a third one for our... We can make this a whole roadshow. We can do this every, every month, just three of us. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so jumping right into it, um, you, you guys are both senior leaders in your roles. Um, how have you used your past experiences to really help propel you and prepare you for where you are now? And, and how has diversity and inclusion played a role in that? Jacqueline, we'll start with you. Sure. So um, my background has been a little bit all over the place. Certainly when I was uh, in my early on, I was always just curious about trying the next thing and the next thing. So I was kind of jumping around into lots of different roles. I started my career as a computer programmer, actually. Um, I did a little sales consulting. I did product management. I did risk management in the financial services industry. So yeah, I was a little bit aimless, frankly. I was just sort of, I didn't have any plan. Uh, I was just sort of doing the next thing that sounded interesting. So um, 
you know, at one point I was a little concerned about there was, you know, not a, a great theme or continuous career trajectory. Um, but in the end, it actually worked out really well. It's, it's all starting to come together. I feel like every role I have had contributes to my ability to be more effective. It gives you a different perspective that, that enhances uh, your ability to perform in the next one. So, you know, in this current role now, I feel like I think about these different positions I've had in the past at, at different times because different experiences will be relevant to certain challenges I'm facing or problems I'm trying to solve. So uh, in retrospect, I'm, I'm really glad, uh, you know, I tried all those different things. I feel like it's helped me to be more uh, well-rounded than I might have been otherwise. And then to the second part of the question about diversity, you know, as part of all of these different experiences, I've worked in different types of organizations, large corporations, smaller startups, and met all different kinds of people, worked in different types of environments. Uh, every company, every team within every company has its own distinct culture and different leaders you encounter with different styles. And similarly, I feel like having been exposed to all of these different types of um, work environments and colleagues has been uh, really enriching, uh, just getting to meet different types of people, seeing what works for different people in different situations, trying to pick up behaviors or trying to emulate certain behaviors that I find, uh, you know, emulate. Emula emulation worthy um, and maybe avoiding other types of behaviors that, you know, are not things that I would aspire to. Um, so, yeah, in terms of diversity, I know traditionally you, you think about race and gender, but to me, it's really, uh, yeah, also about all the different types of leadership styles. I've known you for four years. I didn't know some of the, the experiences you had. So that's pretty interesting learning something new about you today. Uh, Derv, how about yourself? How's your experiences sort of gotten to where you got where you are now? Well, I think first off, coming over from Ireland from a very homogenous society many years ago to decide to work in New York City and for a British holding company, um, that's when it, the whole feeling of difference became all pervasive for me. Um, and I, I, I prefer to use the word difference versus diversity because it's a word, I think, um, it's critical to, once you can get over an association with difference, you get to learn to understand that you can love difference and difference is a very positive, healthy thing. Um, I didn't feel different, um, but people made me feel different. Um, people would welcome me, oh, top of the morning, um, and I would be there. Nobody ever in <laughs> Ireland has ever said top of the morning in their entire lives. Um, uh, St. Patrick's Day. Oh, you're going to go out and you're going to drink Killian's Red. And I'm there like, what's Killian's Red? So I, I found myself going out drinking Killian's Red um, and saying top of the morning because I realized that I wanted a sense of belonging. And I started looking to my bosses and my leaders um, 
for that sense of belonging to bring me in and include me because nobody in my company had the same accent as me. Nobody had the same expressions as me. People were telling me how to be more Irish um, than I knew how to be, apparently. And um, summertime, I was a different color to everybody else, right? Because at summertime, I would get burnt or I would stay pure white, you know. Um, so... When I looked at the leaders, I, I started to see that there were three different types of leaders. I could classify them into three different areas. And the first leader one was I saw a leader that tolerated difference. I could see leaders that accepted differences. And I saw leaders that loved differences. And that stimulated my curiosity and my passion for the sense of belonging and grow into a leader that loved difference. And I think when you're a leader that loves difference, you celebrate it. You see it as your strength. Um, and you see it as your company's strength, and it's a great source of learning, as far as I'm concerned. That's, that's a great segue into my next question, which is, you guys are both leading very globally diverse teams. How do you build inclusion and belonging to your respective teams? Derek, we'll start with you on this one. Well, this is a whole, pa- as you know, Sham, this is a whole passion area from our feed Go for day. it. Go, go for it. Um, so... Several years later into my career, and I never thought about culture that much. You know, uh, uh, Trompreneurs, who's big into the field of cross-cultural competency, he, he, describes, he describes culture. He, everybody knows the definition of it, but nobody knows the impact of it. And he describes it as he compares it to gravity. And you're not aware of it until you're, you know, 10 feet in the air. And I went on to work for a large B2B client, um, very similar dynamic to Jellyfish in terms that there were a global one community, global PNL. So your whole team was the world, the community. And they, the client at the time said, if you're going to be successful running this account, I'm sending you a book called Where Cultures Collide. It's a textbook on culture. And I'm there, oh my God, there's a whole science behind this. Oh, where's the page in Ireland? Where's the page in New York? And where's the page in UK? And let me figure this out. Oh, my God, this makes sense now. That makes sense now. Um, so then I went on, I did, you know, further credentials in this space and learned that there's actually a tremendous, um, so many defined cultural clusters around the world that aligns with cultural value orientations around the world. And that how we use our cultural orientations, value orientations manifest in how we do all these different types of activities. And I'm there. You really, as a global leader, you really need to understand that. You need your teams to understand that, so that you accept the fact that you know we have different approaches to different to similar things and similar dilemmas, many different types of approaches. And once you're aware of all of that, you can start to be a little bit more anticipated. You can be a little bit more uh, proactive about it, and more strategic about your engagement, and think differently. And so, it helps on the business metric side. But it also helps in the collaboration and the communication style. Helps build builds teams' confidence, um, and also when you start foster that real sense of belonging. Again, you're leveraging the strength of the diversity of the global audience. I just think diversity is the status quo. It's how you use different skills and developmental tools like cultural intelligence to build and foster real a real sense of belonging. And it's proven out in the data that once you start doing that, these diverse teams are so much more innovative than heterogeneous teams. Um, so there's lots of tangible business raises value to doing that as well. Where worlds collide, Derv? Is that the name of the book? Yeah. Where cultures, when cultures collide. When cu- Richard cultures Lewis. Collide. Yeah, uh, d- definitely would recommended reading. Um, J- Jacqueline, what, what would you like to add to that? Uh, yeah, as far as uh, 
fostering diversity and inclusion within my team. Uh, I feel like Jellyfish has just been, you know, I mentioned working at lots of different environments. I think uh, Jellyfish by far is the one that's easiest and most embracing of diversity and inclusion that I've ever worked in. You know, I personally really love the uh, the one jellyfish model. And, you know, we always talk about people's superpowers and just enabling people to work on things that suit their particular superpower. So, you know, I think if you talk to most people on my team, they'll say, you know, their jobs are never fixed. We're always fluid. We have different you know, teams of subgroups of people within the team working with each other, people with different styles that can complement each other and work with each other, leverage each individual superpower, but also kind of, you know, enhance each other um, on different projects. So yeah, just constantly giving people different and varied opportunities, um, which is again, yeah, enabled by, you know, our organizational structure which is much less rigid than, you know, other organizations where you have a job, this is what you are, you are paid to do this thing um, day in and day out. So yeah, we really take advantage of the, uh, the flexibility and, and yeah, the celebration of people having different superpowers. And I think Charmaine was talking about it earlier about being able to be authentic and just doing what you do best and trying to get, uh, the work to to fit that and uh, and enable everybody to uh, to to prosper. That's a, that's a great point. You're kind of going back to uh, the point that Derv made about the, I love the analogy of like culture is like gravity, right? You don't know what it is until uh, you're kind of ten feet in the air. So to to lean into that a bit more, like what are the benefits of having that diverse leadership, and, and how does it factor into the culture of a company? Derv, we'll start with you on that one. Okay. Um, the, the, well, the benefits is if you provide that safe space and that sense of belonging, you're going, you're going to be rewarded by more creativity, more innovation, and more risk-taking. Um, a happier workforce, uh, less strict management. Um, and, but then I was thinking about what does uh, diverse leadership mean? Um, so, you know, is it me being diverse? Because I am pretty diverse, so I can bring that into bear. Or is it the teams being diverse? And um, again, I feel um, it's it's more going past diversity and more going into inclusion and building out that safe space uh, for your teams. And um, and I think then the other variance on that would be what is a leadership style in general? Like there's a diversified. You, you talk about a diversified leadership style. But what is leadership? There's a famous quote by uh, William Bennett, I believe, and he compares leadership to beauty. And what that analogy means is that it's in the eye of the beholder. And basically, your people decide you're a leader. So you're providing that sense of diversity and inclusion with your team. They're going to follow you more than anything else, because people really react more than how you make them feel than what you say or do. Then you have, then what you've got yourself, a very motivated workforce who will go off and be proactive, take calculated risks and make great decision making and work harmoniously together around the world and get things done. Great. Jacqueline? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, if you have a, a 
diverse leadership team, then, you know, everybody, you know, you, you tend to gravitate towards or you relate more towards people who are more like you, right? And if you can identify with somebody, like the more diverse the leadership team is, the more likely it is that you'll find somebody that uh, you do relate to and it empowers you to feel like you can just continue to be yourself because that person is a lot like me and they're doing great. So, uh, you know, I can see how they're using our personal styles or our strengths to their advantage. Um, but if, you know, if you've got a leadership team that is very homogenous and everybody is a certain way, now you start to feel self-conscious about being different and you start to feel like, well, maybe I need to start behaving like them if I'm going to progress my career here. So certainly at, at that, for that reason, I think it's nice to have different types of role models uh, where you can demonstrate that all different types of people um, have a place to play in leadership, uh, but also just as, you know, to make the best decisions to, to run the company in as, you know, effective a way you do need different viewpoints. You need different ways of thinking. Uh, I remember one of the, my favorite, most memorable uh, classes uh, that I took in organizational behavior, we did an exercise where we divided the class up into different groups of people that had very similar personality profiles, right? So there's the team that was most analytical, there was the creative team, and uh, so on and so forth. And we were all given the same project. It was this huge something you couldn't possibly do in an hour, right? It was like make an entire business plan for a, a hypothetical new business. And so we all went into these teams with like-minded people and we were all given the same assignment and then we presented back at the end. And it was just very interesting because on the one hand, you know, everybody was in their team. Everybody felt very comfortable. Everybody thought the same way and everybody sort of gravitated in a certain direction. And it was just so amusing at the end to see what got presented back by the different teams. Like no two teams focused on the same aspect of the problem. Like everybody just naturally, like one team did the business case, the financials, the other one was doing a big project plan. And then the best was uh, the creative team spent the entire hour uh, drawing up five different logos for what the company course, logo could look like. Course. They were beautiful, <laughs> but it was just very, very amusing. And, and the point was really um, driven home that, you know, even though you are kind of in your comfort zone with people who are just like you, like you're not going to get the, the optimum results uh, without that kind of diverse uh, viewpoint. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, I don't know what happened at the end, but it would be, I'd be curious to see if, if all those, if you tied all those together, would that make a better story than those individually? So, you know, tying in the diversity bit and showing that you're better with diversity versus a kind of a single-minded way of approaching it. So, Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome. It's been a lot of fun having everyone uh, join. So thank you, Derv, Jacqueline, for joining me. Uh, Sahil, Charmaine as well. First time we did this live, so I only had one blooper. I'll take it for 47 minutes, not a bad average. Uh, thank you guys for <laughs> tuning in, and uh, can, you know, hope you guys tune into more of the Culture Day. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Sham. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform you use to stay updated with the latest episodes. And do leave a review if you feel so inclined. If you have any questions or feedback about the show, send us an email at the current 
at jellyfish.com. We'd love to hear from you. The Jellyfish Current is produced by the editorial and production teams of Jellyfish. If you want to learn more about us, visit us at jellyfish.com. Thanks and see you on the next episode.